Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Father, would you take my lips this morning and speak to them? Would you take our minds this morning and would you think to them? Would you grab a hold of our hearts that we might see you just a little bit more clearly and then leave this place loving you more? We ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please grab a seat. Good morning. Friends, it is cold out there. I'm from the low country of South Carolina, and I don't know what this is, but um, I'm ready for the Lord to come back and warm us up. There we go. Let's pray and get out of here. Just kidding. If we, uh, if we haven't met before, my name is J.D. Meter. I'm the director of Next Generation Ministries here at Church of the Redeemer. So that's from like womb diapers to postgraduate. So a lot going on there. It's really exciting. And then I'm the director of the Greensboro Fellows Program, and we have an amazing cohort of recent college graduates that are here in our folds here. Would love to talk with you more about those things if you'd like, but we're going to jump pretty quickly into the text this morning. There's a lot uh, to get to, so if you have your phones or Bibles, um, you can open them up. We're going to be in our gospel reading. We're going to be in Mark chapter 1, and something that's really fun, we have Bibles in the seats. Um, If you want to be super efficient, it's on page 785, which I've always wanted to do. So we can be in the Word in no time. What a time to be alive here at Church of the Redeemer. We are continuing in um, the season of Epiphany. It's the third week of Epiphany, um, and we are in our series we're calling The Revealing, right? If you recall or were here a couple weeks ago, uh, Dan mentioned this idea that Epiphany is kind of a reference to this, aha, there he is. We use this season to, to look at the person, the character, the actions, of Jesus Christ. Um, and so we're going to do that in this time. Um, we've been in Mark's chapter one, and then last week we were in John chapter one talking about Jesus calling some of the first disciples. This week we're back in Mark, and we're going to hang out there for the duration. And what we're going to look at this morning is what I believe, and scholars believe, the gospel writers, I would actually argue that Jesus himself declared to be his central message, the central message. And if I were to pause for a second and ask you, if you were to sum up Jesus' teachings in a sentence or a phrase, I just wonder what might come to mind. Perhaps it's, it's some of your favorite scriptures. Perhaps it's some of the, the better and good things that he said, like love your neighbor as yourself. It's in Mark chapter 12. It's in Leviticus as well. Maybe when you think of the central message of Christ, you think of the golden rule. That's what my mom used to say, right? Do unto others is you would have them do unto you. It's in Matthew 7. Maybe you, you've been inspired with a heart for justice. And so when you think of Jesus' central message, you think whatever you do for the least of these, so unto me when Christ said that to others that we're supposed to look out for the poor. You may think of a number of other things. Turning the other cheek. Jesus had a lot of really wonderful things to say. But all of those things really flowed out of the central message. They are not the central message according to Jesus. According to Jesus, according to the gospel writers, The central message that Jesus brought into this earth 2,000 years ago is a message about the kingdom of God. And what we're going to do this morning, I hope, with the few minutes that we have together, is we want to look at the context of when he said it. I think that matters. 
we're going to spend a few minutes. What does what does it even mean by that? What's this kingdom thing? And then hopefully, what is our response? What how do we respond to the central message of Jesus Christ? So in Mark chapter one, we're going to start in verse fourteen. As we're going to be, we're going to spend most of the time in these first two verses, and then touch on some of the others as well. Just as a reminder um, of where you've been, Mark is a very efficient writer. He is not one to waste words and. Dan referenced this a few weeks ago, but you'll find that it's true if you read this gospel. Mark goes, and Jesus did this, and then his favorite word, immediately, and then immediately, and then immediately. And it's like, when does anybody breathe in this book? Um, He is a guy who's to the point. He doesn't mince his words. He's got something to say, and he wants people to read it. Um, So he says a lot in the first 13 verses. In the first 13 verses alone, we see Jesus introduce and who he is. We see John the Baptist, or the baptizer. Um, He's preaching of the one who's coming. He makes this announcement as a forerunner. We see Jesus baptized, which we covered um, a few weeks ago. And then after his baptism, we have this fun sentence where Mark says that it's actually the Spirit. It's another sermon for another day. But the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness, into the Ramos, the quiet place. Um, And Mark doesn't share a lot about that time. But we can pick up from some of the other Gospels. Jesus goes there to be tempted. defeats that, overcomes that, and then after 40 days, he returns. And that's where we are in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. It's, it's immediately, right? He's in the wilderness, and then immediately, here we are. If you're following along, we're in verse 14. This is what our writer says. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the Lord. I've already mentioned to you guys this morning that we're going to talk about the central message of Jesus. And again, spoiler alert, I've already told you that it's the kingdom of God. And so this sentence, this verse may feel like a throwaway. It may feel like something we just move aside to get to the, to the main thing. But Mark doesn't waste sentences. He put it here for a purpose. He put it here because I think it matters. And I think it matters to us. If, if we are to just for a second ponder what Jesus has gone through for the context of what happens here, He's baptized intimately, powerfully by John the baptizer. It's an incredibly significant moment. And then he immediately goes away for 40 days and he comes back. He's probably pretty tired. He's probably a bit worn out. He's ready to start his ministry. And and what does he return to find? He returns to find John the Baptist arrested. I don't have time to get into the full implications of this. John was much more than Jesus' odd cousin who ate bugs and declared the kingdom coming. He was way more than that. John was a massive religious and political figure. He had thousands of followers. There are recordings that he had followers as far away as Ephesus. There is a reason that all four gospel writers reference John the Baptist. It's because people knew who he was. He was a massive deal with a massive message. And for his arrest to happen, this is a big deal. For all these thousands of followers to see this incredible figure arrested and put away, this is a significant and dark moment. It wasn't just dark for these people. It was also dark for Jesus. We know that that John was, was a friend of Jesus. We know that he was a brother in ministry, that he baptized him, that he was the forerunner for who Christ was going to be as he entered the world. And according to Luke's gospel, they were cousins who go back to the womb. They had a kinship that's really significant. So can you imagine 
having the significant moment with someone like that, going away for 40 days and coming back to find that he's arrested. And because of what John had to say and because of who he was, this arrest, it's not going to end well. Mark chapter 6, if you flip ahead a few pages, Herod Antipas is going to kill him for his message. This is a heavy moment. And if I could add another layer to this, if, if you'll stay with me, the Gospel of Mark, we know, is written around A.D. 60, so 30-ish years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And, and it started to make its way throughout Rome to the early Christ followers at that time. And if you know anything about early church history, you know that following Christ in Rome at this point is a time of great pain and suffering. Rome was oppressing and killing Christ followers for sport. It is not uncommon to hear or to read that, that perhaps early Christ followers were being mauled by lions so that Romans could be entertained. So these Christians, just 30 years afterwards, they also are likely losing family members. They also are likely losing friends. They also are hurting, and I can just imagine they are significantly afraid. And fear can do an odd thing to us, can it? Sometimes it can make us ask questions that we wouldn't normally ask. I just imagine they, they probably had a, a large swath of questions, just a few that come to mind for me. Does God see me in my suffering? Does God understand this? Is this what he was talking about? Is he close? Is following this Jesus worth it? So I, I'd say all that just to say this. Can you imagine 30 years after this point and your friends and family are suffering and you're asking those questions and you finally get some text about this Jesus that I've given up everything for? And Mark just throws in this line right here after John was arrested and, and you realize, oh, oh, wait a minute, he suffered too. Before he even spoke his central message, before he even proclaimed his gospel, Jesus didn't do that just like with a red carpet. He entered into the brokenness and the fallenness of the world. And then he gave his central message. So does God see me? Does God know me? Is this worth it? This sentence, in my opinion, is a resounding yes. And, and here's what, I don't want to stretch this too, too much, but I would just imagine that uh, statistically, in a room of this size, I am talking to at least a few people who are also suffering, who are also having a hard go of it. If I'm honest, I have had some really hard moments in the last few months, and you know what? I've found myself asking some of these questions. Where are you? Are you with me? Is this what you have for me? And, and like the early church followers, I can find hope in that Jesus' answer is, I've been there, and yes, I'm with you, and I'm for you. And we see it in, in verse 14 as we continue reading. How does Jesus choose to respond to the fallenness and brokenness of this world that we all experience, that he experienced, that the people around him, these thousands of followers of John the baptizer? He... John's arrested, so Jesus comes into Galilee. And what does he do? He proclaims the gospel of God. When Jesus experiences the brokenness and fallenness of this world, his response 
is to look at that brokenness in the face and proclaim the good news of the gospel. And there's just something in my spirit that finds a lot of comfort believing that he's still about that. That Jesus Christ looks at the brokenness that these people are experiencing, that he's experiencing, that perhaps you and I experience in this broken and fallen world. And what does he do? He proclaims the gospel. It's a reminder to me this morning that despite my feelings, the gospel is actually greater than my circumstances. It's a good reminder this morning. But it does lead us to a question. What's that gospel? Mark, Mr. Efficiency, he answers it. Next, next verse. He came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. What is that gospel? And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Gospel, you and Galleon, good news, announcement. It's kingly language. And friends, verse 15 is a jam-packed sentence. So if, if you don't mind, I'm going to pull apart just a couple of, of parts for us to ponder and consider here this morning. First, the time is fulfilled. There are two words in the Greek that could be used here for time. Um, a lot, sometimes you use the word chronos or chronos, right? Sounds like chronological. It's just order. This happened, this happened, this happened. It's in time, right? The order of time. That's not the word that Jesus chose to use here, though. It's, he's not saying like, well, my calendar says it's time for me to fulfill things. Here we go. Like, that's not what he's saying. He uses a different word. It's the word kairos. And kairos is more of a, an opportune moment. It's a thing to reach out and grab. It's at hand, if you will, right? It's a time when the conditions are right for a pivotal action. And this isn't a very intentional use by Jesus. It's particularly intentional when he's speaking to a Jewish audience. Because Jesus is speaking to a group of people that according to the Hebrew Bible, or what you and I refer to as the Old Testament, um, they have seen and read and memorized promises from Yahweh. And those promises included a messianic figure who was going to come and establish a literal global Jewish kingdom. That's what they were expecting. And so Jesus, by using this word, is very efficiently saying something very profound. He's saying that chronos time, those promises that you're looking for, congratulations, here they are. The time is fulfilled. The time is now. If you're looking for the fulfillment of what Yahweh promised, I'm here. The way he says it in the Gospel of John, right? I am he. The time is fulfilled. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying something very proficient. It's a look backwards. I'm the fulfillment of all these different things. And then Jesus keeps going. The time is fulfilled. This, that phrase, the central message, the kingdom of God is at hand. Or maybe in your Bibles it says the kingdom of God has actually come near, has come close. And I've already mentioned this, but I'll say it again. This is Jesus' number one topic, and it's, it's not actually really that close. His second topic, just fun fact, is actually about finances and stewardships of resources. But far and away, the topic that Jesus wanted to just talk about over and over and over again is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He, he uses it, and it's not by accident that this is the first thing that he says in Mark's gospel. It, and it, Mark just doesn't do it. He sets it up as the frame for Jesus' ministry. But Matthew and Luke, they actually do something 
very similar. Early in their Gospels, first thing out of Jesus' mouth, this is what I'm here to talk about. This is what I'm here to do. Kingdom of God, let's roll. Matthew actually gets so excited about this idea that he actually mentions kingdom of he uses kingdom of heaven, same idea. He mentions kingdom of heaven over 50 different times in his gospel. Have you ever been around people who just like, whatever the conversation is, like they just find a way to revert it back to that? Like I had friends when I lived in Charleston that did CrossFit and like we could be talking about anything on the planet and they would be like, yeah, well, I was doing CrossFit. And I'm like, how? How? How did the... I'm talking about socks. Like, I don't, it just, I, yeah, people are weird. And we all have those things, right, that, that we're really excited about. And for whatever reason, it's like, it just kind of eats out of us. For whatever reason, it seems that that was true for Jesus. And that's true for Matthew and, and Mark. The kingdom of God. And, and this might, for me to say that this is the gospel message or the central message of Jesus, I wouldn't be surprised, and I, I'm not criticizing you if that sounds a little bit odd, because it is a little bit odd, because at least for me, like when I have been taught the gospel, I've heard a lot of really wonderful things that Jesus Christ, that God himself came into the world and that he lived a perfect life, that he died, not as a victim, but as a sacrifice and that he defeated death. And, and so I can be in right relationship with God again. That is the gospel and that is good news. But, but what we didn't mention in there is the phrase that Jesus said over and over and over again. I haven't heard the gospel very often, and maybe you haven't either, through the lens of this kingdom of God. But perhaps we should. There's a few reasons why I think maybe this doesn't immediately land in our culture and society. Um, one is when we hear the word kingdom, I, we usually think of like a physical place, right? I'm outing myself. I'm embarrassed to even say this to you. But the first thing that came into my mind, I thought back to childhood JD, and I thought of the Magic Kingdom. I thought of Orlando, Florida. I don't know if it's because it's cold, and I was like, it's warm there. But that, there's a mouse and stuff. That, that's what I thought of. Maybe you're like a, a grown-up, and you thought of the United Kingdom with adults and things. I, I don't know. That's better. Whatever. It, Magic Kingdom, right? You, you buy your ticket and you enter into a place. United Kingdom, you, you go in there, you cross a border, you enter in. It's, it's like, where are borders? What's this place look like? It's, it's a sovereign land, dimensions. Not saying that that's wrong. It's just not what you'd think of the word for kingdom in Hebrew and the word for kingdom in Greek. Both don't primarily talk about a place. They talk about a person. Kingdom is not about a place with borders. A kingdom is about the king. So the kingdom of God, what a lot of scholars that I read this week and, and others say too, you could go ahead and take that, pull it out, and what it's really a reference to is the rule and the reign of God. N.T. Wright said it this way. It's a question asking, who's in charge here? He also said this, God's kingdom and the kingdom of heaven, they meant the same thing. They mean the sovereign rule of God, which according to Jesus was and is breaking in to this present world here on earth. So the question is, who's in charge here? Who's in authority here? Who's running the show now? What Jesus is declaring is whatever was in charge before, that 
time has come, and Yahweh is once again running the show right here and right now. So the kingdom is really about the king. The second thing that may throw us off a little bit is we're Western, and we don't really do kingdoms anymore, right? And even if we do kingdoms, it's really so we can follow the royal family on TV or something. Many of us think it's an old-fashioned idea. Some of us even may be tempted to think that it's oppressive. And it's not just that it's that, but ingrained in the fabric of our society, like kind of the water that we're swimming in, the culture that we're in, we naturally think of this separation between the religious and, and the secular, right? In, in our founding documents, we even see this, the separation of church and state. I'm not here to bash the founding documents of the United States. I'm thankful to live here at such a time as this. That was actually designed to protect the church. Not saying that's bad. What I am saying is it can lead to some weird thoughts when it comes to how we understand the Bible. This idea of, of the religious is over here, and we don't let that mess with the government. We don't met, let that mess with our thoughts on how we vote. We don't let that mess with our very lives, our work, our vocation. All of that's over here, and we do religion over here, and that's just the water that we swim in. And it actually impacts the way we think about God. Here would be like an example, okay? We've, we've, got our, we've got the world down here, and, and where is God? Well, he's in this heaven, right? So he's up here. And at one point, pretty cool news, God sent his son, I'm not downplaying this, please hear me, into this world. He did some cool stuff, and then he went back up here. And if I put my faith in him, then I'll get to go up here. And who cares about down here? That's not the story of the Bible. You know who cares a lot about right here? God. The one who made right here cares deeply about what's going on right here. There, it is not a separate thing going on. What Jesus is saying is I've come to bring these two things into a radical clash together. I've come to say that there is no up here and down here. That God is actually bringing these two things together. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. It's right in front of you. You just reach out and grab it. Here it is. And I'll, let me give you a quick example, okay? It's all over the text, but I think this one's really significant. The disciples, they actually don't ask Jesus that many questions. Um, they don't ask him how to do miracles. They don't ask him how to draw large crowds. They don't ask him about like how you walked on water. They don't ask any of those things. They only ask really one significant question. They ask, how do you pray? Which is kind of weird because they're Jewish. They pray all the time. They're really good at it. And so if there was one thing that I would think that these disciples knew how to do, they're like, well, I got the pray thing down. How exactly are you doing all the other stuff? Like, do I spit in the mud this way? Like, how does this break the bread this way? So many people. I don't know, right? They don't ask about that. It's almost like they realized just through being around Jesus, that his intimacy with God through prayer seems to be the foundational thing of what's going on. So we're going to ask about that. So they look at him and they say, teach us to pray. And what does he say? We're going to say it in a few minutes, right? The Lord's Prayer. You likely have it memorized. Our Father, who art in heaven, right? God's kingdom, not of this world. Hallowed be your name. We revere you. Watch what's next. Your kingdom Come, come down here. What does it mean for the kingdom of come? 
Well, Jesus is awesome. So he answers that too. Your will, your rule and reign be done right here on earth as in heaven. It's, it's as he's praying, God, would you come down here and take over? You're in charge here. So the disciples look at Jesus. How do we pray? And he goes, this is how you pray. God, come down here and rule over everything. This is your kingdom now. That's what Jesus came to do. And that's what Jesus came to say. That's what he came to taught. He came to usher in a new season of the rule and the reign of God Almighty right here on the earth. And if you want to see what that reign looks like, I don't have time to get into all the details. I would encourage you to pick up this Bible and just keep reading. Keep flipping. Lots of good things in there. In the Gospel of Mark alone, you want to see what the kingdom of the Father looks like? Look at the Son. And this is what the Son did in the Gospel of Mark. He healed people. He restored broken relationships. He defeated people possessed by demons. He restored true Sabbath rest again. He calmed storms. He fed hungry people, 5,000 of them and 4,000. He gets after it. He walked on the water. He raised the dead. He displayed remarkable love, shocking humility, true friendship. He himself defeated death, and he, he resurrected to usher in this kingdom of God. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ is just a snapshot into the kingdom that he promised to them. The life and ministry of Jesus is a snapshot into this kingdom of God. But you guys are likely pretty smart people, at least most of you. Just kidding. Maybe. Um, JD, when I, you may be asking, JD, when I look at my life, it doesn't always look like that. If I'm, on, if I'm honest, it almost never looks like that. Did Jesus bring the kingdom 2,000 years ago, or is he going to bring it when he returns? Which one is it? Because it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. He's saying that he brought the kingdom, that it's at hand. My life doesn't look like it. So is it, when is it? And the answer to that question is yes. George Ladd is a theologian in, in the late 1950s. He wrote this really powerful book. It's called The Gospel and the Kingdom. And he came up with this phrase that you've likely heard before. I think it's really, really phenomenal. It's this phrase, the kingdom of the now and the not yet. It's like this tension here. The answer is yes. Jesus did usher in the kingdom and, and the fullness of the kingdom is coming. And we're kind of in this middle act of the two. And so we should look at the life of Jesus and see what the kingdom should look like. We should also look ahead. What is this kingdom going to look like? And again, it's all through the New Testament. You've got to do some homework yourself. But in the book of Revelation alone, right, we can look and we can see this. In Revelation 11, this is verse 15. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and of his Christ, of Yahweh and of his Christ. And he shall reign, rule forever and ever. What are we going to? We're going to a place where God's on a throne globally right here. And his rule and his reign is the way. And, and what does that look like? It, John continues it in Revelation. He describes God and where is God sitting? He's sitting on a throne. Why is he sitting on a throne? Because he's a king. He's wiping away tears. He's throwing out death. He's dispelling mourning and crying or pain. The kingdom is here and the kingdom is on the way. And so my last part here in the Gospel of Mark 
is what do we do with this rule and reign of God? My first full-time job out of college, I was a camp director and I was an itinerant speaker. So I worked with a bunch of youth groups and youth ministries. And um, so I got to know a lot of different youth pastors and directors. But then there was this breed of human being I got to know called a youth intern. And, and they're the best and also the worst and usually the loudest. <laughs> and uh, I, I, there was a young man one year at camp. He was kind of leading this breakout session with his students. Uh, he couldn't have been 18 years old and he was doing a good job. But he, I mean, he is getting into it. He's letting him have it. I'm like, this guy, look at you, buddy. And, and so he's going and, and he's like, um, he's like, guys, we, we've got to turn away from these things. We've got to repent. We've got to change our lives. To really repent, it doesn't mean you just change a little bit. It means we've got to do a full 360. <laughs> and I'm watching these high schoolers look at each other and they're like, Like, are you going to tell him? <laughs> In theological language, we call that a twirl. And uh, I don't, he, was he was trying. He was close. He had the right idea. What he meant to say, if he understood circles, is he meant a 180, right? To do a complete turn. He had the right idea. The, the Greek word for this idea of repent, it is. It does reference that. It's a complete change, a complete turn. It's the word metanoia. And what it literally means is a fun, fundamental change of the mind. A, a way that you could read repent in the Gospels from time to time. It could read change the way you think. The, the Greeks were very heady people. What, what this is really saying is what's the thing at the base of all your actions? It's your thoughts. So repent. Change the very core of what everything else flows out of. Right? Repent. Metanoia. Change fundamentally everything about you. And N.T. Wright wrote this about this idea of repentance in his book, Surprised by Hope. Repentance is a serious turning away, not 360, 180, turning away from patterns of life which deface and distort our genuine humanness. He also said this in another writing, repentance is the act of laying aside our agenda, the things that we think bring us life, for God's agenda, right? What are we really doing there? We're putting God on his throne. We're making this, us, the kingdom of God, right? We're laying aside everything about us, everything that we think we need to be doing and trading that for what God has for us. Repentance is laying aside our agenda for God's agenda. There is a couple thoughts on repentance. To, I'll be brief with this. First, there, there's actually no area of our life that gets to escape true repentance. It, by ne definition, has to impact everything about us. You and I don't get to repent partially. It's an all or nothing experience. If Christ is who he says he is, then what he asks of you is all of you. Billy Graham said it this way, what does, what does the divine sufferer demand from us? Only our faith, our love, our grateful praise, our consecrated hearts, and our very lives. Is that too much to ask? Repentance is an all-in experience. Another point on repentance, it is not just a one-time thing that we do. I think maybe some of us have been taught to think that repentance is, is this action that we take when we initially give up the reign and control of our lives to Jesus. And that's true. That is repentance. 
Um, but it's not just something that you did once at a summer camp. It's something that we are invited to do by God Almighty on a daily basis in our very lives, in our very beings. Repentance is a daily occurrence. It's a daily prayer. We actually did this together while we were confessing. I don't know if you noticed it. We said, we're truly sorry. We humbly repent. What are we saying? We recognize that we haven't done an adequate job of putting Christ on his throne. We, we recognize that we haven't adjusted to the rule and reign of God like we should. So how do we respond to that? We reorient our lives right now through the power of the Holy Spirit to change us at the very core of who we are. It's a daily occurrence that our liturgy really helps us with. It's something we should be doing over and over. Tim Keller said this. He said that gospel repentance is not only the way to enter the kingdom, it is the way to live in the kingdom. It's a daily occurrence, this idea of repentance. And the last thing on repentance, I think it's really important the way that Jesus calls for it. You'll notice that there's no question mark. Here's who I am. Here's what I'm doing. Now you do this. I'm the son of God. I'm ushering in the rule and reign of God. This is the response that you should have with that, right? It's, it's as if he's saying, if you recognize who I am and you recognize what I'm about to do, this is what the human response has to be. It's to repent. It's to change everything about us. It's to change us at the core of who we are. And this is maybe easier said than done. We kind of see how this plays out in the following verses. And again, we're not going to go through them line by line, but we see these four guys. They're massive figures in the early church. Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, the sons of thunder. Three of these four guys are Christ's inner circle. Like this, like these, this is the celeb show for the early readers. It's like, holy moly, I know him. He used to fish. Yeah. He looks at them. And what does Jesus say? He says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And what do they do? Well, I mean, they, Mark makes it clear that they do follow him. They leave. They cast aside everything. He uses that word that he loves so much immediately. And he makes clear, too, that they leave their jobs, their vocation, and they leave their family. And for you and I, we live in a society where we move all the time. We live in a society where we change jobs all the time. But that is just not the case for these people in this society. The vocation was very much a, a part of your identity. Your, your mother and father did this, you do this. Joseph was a carpenter, Jesus was a carpenter. Zebedee's a fisherman, John's a fisherman. This is who I am, John the fisherman. It's like a last name, right? This is the core of who they are. And family, you didn't leave family either. But, but what Jesus asks of them is something that I think is really profound. I think it's something really important. He asked them to lay aside anything everything to truly repent and to actually follow me with no promises of where I'm going. I'm going somewhere. You, you, if you're along for the ride, all it requires is everything that you are. And so here's the, the logical question that comes of that. If, if repentance is actually this daily act of laying aside my agenda for God's agenda, then what is it for me that gets in the way? Some of them could be good things. Does my work get in the way? Does my family get in the way? My finances get in the way. I don't, I don't know what that might be. But anything that we put on the throne of our lives rather than his kingdom is, is a defiance in this kingdom of God. Here's the trick. We don't get to be invited to build the kingdom of God 
if we let something else or someone else be our king. There is one king in this kingdom. Repentance is reordering our loves and putting the Lord back in his proper place and let everything else flow from there in this kingdom of God. So in these verses, there's a lot in here. I appreciate you sticking with me. Jesus, he, what does he do? He shows up and he proclaims the gospel in the face of fallenness, in the face of an arrest, in the face of what would be a murder. That's the context that he proclaims the gospel. He also says in these verses that he came at the opportune time to fulfill all that the Old Testament longs for and promises. And, and he says that he ushers in the rule and the reign of God again. And then he does something really profound. He looks at you and he says, what are you going to do with it? He is very to the point and he's very direct about this. Are you going to take it or leave it? What do you want with this? What are you to do? He calls and he asks to, to repent and believe the gospel. It's, it's on us whether or not we would like to do that. And so friends, this morning, if, if you are someone in this room that this is new for you, this Jesus that we've been trying to discover and reveal in this series together, if, if this Jesus is a new figure for you, if you've never considered making him the king or ruler of your life, if you've never repented, traded your agenda for his agenda, this is the call with every fiber of my being, within every gusto I have to say this, the call to you is please, today, now, repent and believe the gospel. Turn away. Make him king. The more that you know him, the more that you'll love him. There is no one like this king. There is no one else that's worthy of your worship. And if you're on the other side of the coin, if you're somebody who's walked with Jesus for a long time, the call to you, friend, is eerily similar. Today, repent and believe the gospel. Don't let anything of this world come between you and the kingdom of God coming here to this earth. Friends, my prayer for us as a church is that we would join with Jesus, that we would be a place that's so focused on ushering in our king and sitting under his rule and reign that our city would be transformed, that this world would be transformed, and that we would long for the day that the kingdom that Jesus was so fond of talking to us about would come here and be with us. Would you pray with me? Lord, let it be so. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. We love you. Father, we repent and give you everything. In Jesus' name, amen.